Exodus chapter 12. We read in verses 1 through uh, 32, it's a long passage, which gives us an opportunity to practice what we believe, what we say we believe, which is, this is God's word to us. There's nothing more important than you can do than to sit still and listen to God's word. We don't always do it, but you will not grow spiritually if you don't listen to the preaching. I don't like to trump my position up any more than the Bible does, but the preaching of the word is how you have faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So when the Bible's being preached, you're getting fed if you're receiving it. If you are not receiving it, if you are closing your mouth, as it were, to the food, you will starve. So as the Bible is read, as God's word is read, and as the Bible is faithfully expounded, faithfully is key there, if you don't listen to it, you have no other food. You will starve spiritually. So that's an encouragement to listen to the word of God as it's faithfully given to you. And when it's not faithfully given to you, uh, you need to remedy that too, either by firing me so that I can learn and grow, or by gently correcting some small errors. But for the sake of us all, the, the word of God being preached on Sunday morning is the key to the church. Amen. So in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, uh, Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Just if you've missed the past few weeks, we just had nine plagues on Egypt. Flies, frogs, darkness, plagues, boils. This is the tenth plague about to happen. It was warned in the last chapter. The tenth plague, the final plague, is God's final uh, judgment on Egypt so that Pharaoh will release the people. So Pharaoh, uh, Moses has just told Pharaoh that the tenth plague's coming. Pharaoh said, not going to change. Then we have this. So God says, And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor, neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. That's four days later. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire, with unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire, its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning, but what remains of it until morning you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it, with a belt on your waist, and your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be to you as a memorial, 
and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You shall keep it as a feast by an everlasting ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. So he's made a shift here, if you notice. He said, here's what you need to do immediately. Put the door, kill the lamb, put it on the doorpost. Now he's switching to saying, here's what you're going to do in the future. So this day should be to you a memorial. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day into the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day there should be a holy convocation. And on the seventh day there should be a holy convocation for you. That just means uh, they all got together. <coughs> I lost my place. No, matter, no manner of work shall be done on them, but that which everyone must eat, that only be, may be prepared by you. So you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this same day I will have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as an everlasting ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven shall be found in your house. Since whoever eats what is leavened, that same person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a stranger or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling, and in all your dwellings you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families, and kill the Passover lamb. <coughs> and you shall take the bunch of hyssop, which is a kind of a plant, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. And you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Then you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, who passed over the houses of children of Israel in Egypt, when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the children of Israel went away and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where there was not one dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go and serve the Lord as you have said. Also take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Quite a passage. Many of you are familiar with it. And most of what I'm going to say is not going to be new. But that's a good thing. And that's what the whole point of the passage is about, actually. is about not saying anything new. So this final plague is unique, as we've seen from the passage. So if you remember the last ones, it was sort of Moses went to Pharaoh, pronounced it. that The plague was going to come. Pharaoh wouldn't listen. The plague came. One after another. But now we take this huge, long break, and God starts talking about rituals and things like that. Here's what the passage is doing. It's teaching the people who God is and who they are in relation to him. That's what the sermon's about. 
it's not a lot of practical stuff, sort of like three steps to have a better marriage or two steps to be successful at work or seven steps to lose weight. It's about who God is and who you are in relation to him. In other words, it's a really big picture. It's, let's take a step back from the day-to-day life and look at what really matters. And what will happen is if you take a step back from the day-to-day life and look at what really matters, when you come back to the day-to-day life, it looks different. It's not all about pragmatism. It's about getting perspective on reality. And that's what happens here in a very uh, striking way. God, we see three things in this passage. God is the almighty judge. God is a merciful savior. And God is a perpetual covenant-making God. Almighty judge, merciful savior, and covenant-making God. So look at the first thing. He's the almighty judge. As the almighty judge, he's examining everyone. This is sort of the dark part of the passage and the sermon. God is just, and he's examining everyone. So, so far in the passage, all these, so far in the book, it's Egypt's bad, and they're oppressing God's people. And so God says, I'm going to punish you. So he sends plagues. And all these plagues are, are punishing Egypt and warning Egypt. And in the plagues, Israel, living in Goshen, a different part of the land, they were not struck by any of the plagues. Darkness comes on the land. There's light where Israel is. The cows get killed in Egypt. There's light in Goshen. The boils strike every single person in Egypt. Nobody where Israel lives. And it's God's way of saying, these are my people. They're under my protection. Egypt's being judged. Egypt has oppressed my people. They've worshipped false gods. They've refused to let my people go. And now they're being judged. But suddenly, what happens? Suddenly, Israel is in danger of being killed. Out of nowhere. Everything up to this point is Israel's been oppressed. Egypt will be judged. Now, all of a sudden, God's like, you better watch out. You might die. It's a sudden shift in the whole book of Exodus, away from, Israel, away from Egypt being judged to Israel being in danger of death, in danger of being killed. Not just the false god worshipers. So it says here that, that he's going to judge the gods of Egypt with this plague. And that's what part of, you know, when he struck the Nile, he was judging the god of the Nile in all these sort of ways that showing that Egyptian gods, the false gods, couldn't cut it. And anyone that worshipped false gods was going to be punished. But now he's saying those that worship the true God could be killed. Not just false god worshippers, but true god worshippers. And we see that here because in uh, chapter in verse twenty-seven, and when he instructed the house, so the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Who were they worshiping? The Lord. But they still would have been killed. See a striking comparison. God's going to destroy Egypt because they're bad. But he's saying he could destroy Israel too, though they worship him. It's a big shift in the whole book of Exodus that gives us a perspective on how reality is. Because we love, love, love to be the good guys. And to look at the bad guys and say, God's going to get them. Man, God's going to get them. Look what they're doing. They're sinning and they're worshiping wrong gods and they don't care about the Bible and they don't care about truth. God's going to get them. This passage is like a smack in the face. It's saying God's going to get you. Just acknowledging that God is the true God doesn't protect Israel. 
Peter N says the destroyer's mission, the destroyer who would come and kill the firstborn, firstborn, was blind to ethnic distinctions. It was on the basis of the blood and only on that basis that the destroyer made the distinction between Israel and Egypt. God had the right to express his ownership over Israel by killing their firstborn as well. God is saying, I'm not just the God of the Egyptians, I'm your God as well. And that means I am almighty and I'm the judge. Matyar says, when Yahweh entered Egypt as absolute Lord and judge, because said he would walk through the streets at night, Israel's problem was no longer how to escape Pharaoh, but how to be safe before such a God. You see, at this point, they're like, man, if they can just get away from Pharaoh. Now God's saying, if you can just get away from me. Pharaoh's not your biggest problem. The world's not your biggest problem. Bad people aren't your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is God showing up in front of you. That's your biggest problem. When the perfect, almighty, all-powerful, righteous judge shows up at your door and you're not ready, that's a bad place to be. Pharaoh's no problem. Pharaoh's going to die. Pharaoh can be tricked. We've seen Pharaoh get tricked already. But God can't. And so he's telling Israel, you're in trouble. You're in danger. I'm coming to kill people, and you need to get ready. God walks the earth, terrible and powerful, terrible in righteousness. We don't like to think of God as terrible, do we? But terrible means terrifying. When we say God is awesome, he creates awe. He creates a fear in those who can't stand before him. What most of us do is ignore that part about God. The world likes to ignore the part about God who kills. God who doesn't overlook sin. God who is with us. We like to think of God with us as always a good thing. But here, God's telling Israel, it's not always a good thing if you're not good. Johnny Cash expresses this. His song is called, God's Gonna Cut You Down. It says, well, you may throw your rock and hide your hand, working in the dark against your fellow man. But as sure as God made black and white, what's done in the dark will be brought to light. You can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. That's what the Bible is telling us. God doesn't wink at sin. Even if you acknowledge who he is, even if you worship God like the Israelites did, God still hates sin. And you can ignore it, but God will cut you down. God will kill your firstborn. God will kill you. But that's not the end of the passage, is it? You see, the passage doesn't make sense unless you understand God kills people. Then the passage makes sense. Because what's the passage about? It's about God making a way for Israel so he doesn't have to kill them. That's the whole point. We can't skip to the rescue unless you realize what the danger is. So now we realize that God hates sin and kills sinners. Now we can appreciate what God is doing to prevent that. So the merciful Savior, the righteous judge is also the merciful Savior, providing a substitute to kill. You see, God's going to kill somebody. Justice demands that there be a payment made. Overlooking evil is not good. Overlooking evil is evil. And so God says, I must kill to satisfy justice. But 
I'll provide a substitute for you, and I'll kill the substitute. So God gives this elaborate ritual. Many of us may have heard this before, so it's familiar to us, but if you've never heard it before, it's kind of weird. It's very strange. You get this lamb, and you keep him for four days in your house, and then you slit its throat, and you take the blood and put it in a bowl, and then you take it and wipe it on your door, and then you hide inside your house, dressed and ready to go, and eat bread that's all flat. What's going on? That's weird. God's giving an elaborate ritual to protect them. You see, God says, I'm coming to kill you, but here's something that will protect you from me. Riken says, in salvation, God gives what God demands. God demanded blood. He demanded of Pharaoh, he demanded of Egypt, and he demanded it of the people. And he says, but I'll provide the blood for you. I want it, I'm going to get it, but I'll provide it for you so you don't have to give it to me yourself. And so he gives a symbolic preparation. You find a perfect lamb, one year old, no blemishes. It could also be a goat, that changes later. Then you keep it, then you kill it, then you drain its blood, then you put its blood in the door, then you make bread with no leaven in it, then you roast the lamb, just enough for you to eat, no extra, you burn the extra. You don't boil it. Very careful preparations. The lamb has to be perfect. Why? Because God doesn't take second best. God doesn't say, well, I'll just, whatever you got left over. When God came to kill the firstborn, he didn't want the secondborn. He wanted the firstborn. The firstborn was the prized member in a family in the ancient times. He didn't settle for second best. So the lamb is showing that God wants what's perfect. God wants the perfect sacrifice. The food, the unleavened bread, the unleavened bread that they had to eat, which would become a symbol of, of the ceremony, was because they had to get out of there real fast. That's the symbol. Leaven takes a while to rise. I don't know if you've ever baked bread, but you got to let it rise. Well, if you've got to uh, get out of town real fast, can't wait for it to rise. So you don't put leaven in it. So they ate the unleavened bread so that they could take it with them without having to wait for it to rise. So it's a symbol. This symbol is God's rescuing you. Get out. Don't wait around. Don't hold on to anything. You, they're standing in their house with their belts tied, their sandals on, their staff in their hand. Think about these people at this time. They never wore shoes inside. So the whole family is dressed with their shoes on, standing in the middle of their house with all their stuff, waiting to leave forever. They'll never see that house again. They'll never see that life again. They've been there for 400 years. They were established. They built that house for their families. But they're there in the middle of it with all their stuff, looking at their house for the last time. That's what the unleavened bread means. It means you're leaving and you're not coming back and you're not lingering behind. Everything's ready to go. The death sentence that God has proclaimed was on every house, every single house, Egyptian and Israelite. Look in verse 30, chapter 12, verse 30. It says, So Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. We like to think, except for the Israelites. No, also the Israelites. Every single house in Egypt had a dead person in it. But the substitute for the Israelites was the dead lamb. The dead lamb satisfied the death sentence. The blood was shed. God didn't just say, oh, I'm not going to come to your house. He went to their house. He stood at their door, and he got blood from the house. 
So the faith, they had to have faith to do this. They had to say, I believe that the blood will protect me. I believe that obeying God and putting the blood in the door, that when the destroyer comes to kill, they won't kill me. But faith is not what saved them. When God came to their house, he didn't say, do you have faith? And they said, yes. And he said, okay, I'll pass over. He came to the house and he looked for blood. Let's not confuse our faith in God for what saves us. Your faith is worthless. God wants blood because that's what's deserved for sin. So the destroyer came to the house, saw the blood, and was satisfied. And the people inside the house were protected. We have a song about this. When I see the blood, Christ our Redeemer died on the cross, died for the sinner, paid all his due. All who receive him need never fear. Yes, he will pass, will pass over you. O great compassion, O boundless love, Jesus hath power. Jesus is true. All who believe are safe from the storm. Oh, he will pass, will pass over you. When I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass over you. Not when he sees your faith. He doesn't pass over you because you believe. He passes over you because he sees the blood. That's what's important here. Not was their firstborn perfect. Was the lamb perfect? Not did they have enough faith. Was the blood on the door? When God comes to your door to kill you, you don't want to mess around with how good you are. You don't want to have to wonder if you're good enough, if you have enough faith, if you've walked the right way. That's not the time to worry about those things. What you need to know is, is he satisfied? And blood's the only thing that will satisfy him. It's a very harsh religion in a lot of ways. It's not love and peace. It's blood. Why? Because of righteousness and justice. But look at what God has done for us. He's given us something. Hebrews 3, 4 says, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. This world is like a house. It's one big story. God built it. Moses was in the first part of the story, and we're in the second part. So when you're reading this story about lambs being killed and blood put, being put on doors, don't put it away. This is the same story you're in. This is a prophecy. They were to remember it, but in remembering it, they were prophesying about what would come. And what would come? Another perfect lamb. You see, this is all part of our story. Think about the Israelites at this time. What would they have thought about this lamb being killed? Everything up to this point was God would deliver them from Egypt. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, they're supposed to kill a lamb and put it on the door. Where'd that come from? They were the slaves. They were the oppressed. So there's this idea of like, okay, God's going to kill the lamb instead of killing me. But wait a minute. That's not a fair trade. No one has a child and says, yeah, this is worth one lamb. So even at this time, there was a disconnect between the sacrifice and the reward. The only way God looked over this was not because of the lamb. It was because it was pointing towards the lamb. One little baby lamb is not going to save your family. But God, as the lamb, can save it. So this is all a prophecy. Not for them only, but for us as well. Moses was talking to us when he wrote this because he's telling us about a lamb that will come in the future. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. 
Don't separate the images. Don't just say, oh, that's a metaphor. No, it's not a metaphor. Imagine that little lamb, its head being lifted up and the, and the knife being run across its throat. Every child saw that. So if your children haven't seen that kind of stuff, every Israelite child saw that on purpose. Watch that lamb be killed and his blood drained out. Now it says that Christ is our Passover who was also sacrificed in the same way. In the same way. A horrible death. A public death. Don't forget that Christ suffered and died. He didn't die peacefully in his sleep. He was tortured to death. Worse than a lamb getting its throat cut. But that's important because we need blood to put on our door. And a lamb's not going to cut it. You need a perfect sacrifice. God's going to kill somebody for sin. He either kills you for your sin or he kills Jesus for your sin. And if he killed Jesus for your sin, he'll pass over you. But if you don't accept that sacrifice, he'll stop at your door. He'll come in your door and he'll kill you. You see, the justice of God is terrible, but the sacrifice is beautiful. It's accept Christ and God just passes right over you. Reject Christ and he comes inside and kills you. That's quite a distinction, isn't it? There's no middle ground there. There's no, oh, we just got sick instead. No, it's the ultimate judgment. So when we trust Christ, he is our sacrifice. He is our Passover. The great irony in says is the true firstborn son is not protected as was Israel, but he became the enemy of God, as was Egypt. In his death, the firstborn son is more like Egypt than Israel in that he bears God's wrath. You see what Christ, the perfect son of God, the perfect lamb of God did? He got treated like Egypt so that we could get treated like Israel. That's the substitute. That's what this whole story is about. Forget the Egyptians. Forget the Israelites. The whole story is to tell us that God hates sin, but Christ paid the sacrifice. And you receive it by faith. And then God sees the blood and he passes over you. Now, if you're like me, and you're like everybody else I've ever known, you know it, but it's not really a part of your life. You acknowledge it, you accept it as true, but then you go to work, then you've got kids, then you get sick. All this sort of stuff gets in the way, and who cares about what happened a long time ago? We want to care, but we don't. So God says, I understand that's how humans are. So God then gives the Israelites a ritual to help them remember. This Passover was the defining moment in Israelite history. In fact, in verse 12, in chapter 12, verse 3, it says, speak to all the congregation of Israel. It's the first time that word is used. Before that, they were just people. Now they're a congregation. They've been gathered. But they needed to remember that because later it's going to be hard to remember. A hundred years later, 200, 500, 1,000 years later, it's really hard to remember this event. So God gives them a ritual to perform over and over and over again. He calls it the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. In verse 14, he calls it that. It's an ongoing, future-oriented mark of the covenant community. See, God made a covenant with Israel. He says, you be my people, and I'll be your God. This was the mark of it. In fact, it's so much a mark that if you didn't do it, you were cut off. Look in verse 15. Seven days you should eat unleavened bread. On the first day you should remove leaven from your house. For whoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, 
that person shall be cut off from Israel. That seems kind of harsh, doesn't it? You have one piece of white bread, and the next thing you know, you're kicked out into the wilderness. That's extreme, isn't it? Well, it teaches you something, though, doesn't it? If you don't buy in, you're out. And it taught every generation that. You see, this wasn't for them. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread wasn't for the people in the Passover. It was for their kids. It was for their grandkids. Verse 24 says, You shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. Verse 26, And it shall be when your children say to you, What do you mean by the servants? When your children say to you, I don't remember the Passover. I wasn't there. I wasn't born. And you say, I wasn't born either. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. I don't know what it was. I don't know what it looked like. When they ask you, what does this service mean? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over the house of Egypt, over the house of the children of Israel in Egypt and delivered our households. It's teaching people what God has done for them, not by doing it again. Have you ever asked, like, I'll believe in God if he comes down and tells me he exists. No, God doesn't bend to our whims like that. He did it once. He didn't need to deliver Israel over and over again. He did it one time. They just need to remember it. This is the power of ritual. So we like to have everything fresh and new, right? It's not iPhone 6, iPhone 9, iPhone 10X, Xbox One, Xbox 360, Xbox whatever, right? Every new model is better than the last. We don't like traditions. We don't like uh, sort of this, what we think of many churches who just sort of do the same thing over and over again. But ritual has power. Ritual shapes people. It creates things. That's what God is saying here. He's saying, I'm going to create you by remembering what I did over and over and over again. A seven-day feast where you kill lambs and you can't eat certain kinds of bread. You have to clean leaven out of your house. Over and over and over again so your kids know and your grandkids know and you become a new people. And if you don't do it, you're out. If you're not part of the community, if you don't participate in this identity, you're out. Now, how does that apply to us? First of all, this is the old covenant. God made a covenant with Israel. That's why he's protecting them from Egypt. But that covenant didn't quite cut it. What about their spiritual conditions? Okay, they didn't get killed by Pharaoh. Their firstborn made it, but what, what now? What about us? So God says, the old covenant wasn't enough, so I'm going to make a new covenant for you. The old covenant was land and prosperity and sort of give you the land of Israel and be your God and make you prosper and have a lot of kids, have a lot of stuff. That's the old covenant. The new covenant is different. It's better. Hebrews, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, and he broke it, talking about Jesus at the Last Supper. Jesus taking the Passover, actually. So let's remember, when Jesus takes the Passover, right before he dies, he says this, and he broke the bread... The Passover bread, like the unleavened bread that we're talking about here. He took that bread, uh, celebrating the Passover 1,500 years later. He took that bread that they've been doing every year for 1,500 years, and he said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, a Jew hearing that would have been shocked because for 1,500 years, they'd done it in remembrance of the Passover lamb. Now Jesus is saying, I'm changing everything. Now you do it in remembrance of me. He also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant 
of my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. God's, Jesus is changing everything right now. He's taking what the Passover was pointing back to and saying, I'm going to stop that and give you a new covenant. And this meal is for that new covenant. In a similar way that the old meal was for the old covenant, the Lord's Supper, the communion, is for the new covenant. New covenant, new ritual, same story. This is the connection between what happened to a bunch of people 1,500 years ago or 3,500 years ago and us. It's the same story. It's the same God. It's the same justice. It's the same love. It's just a new covenant. The covenant community gathers to remember what God has done for them. You see the connection? They gather to remember God not killing their firstborn and getting them out of Egypt and giving them a new life. The new covenant remembers God not killing us, God rescuing us out of oppression, God giving us a new life and a new family, making us into his people. That's what the Lord's Supper is. When we take the Lord's Supper, that's what we're remembering. We're remembering what God has done for us. That's why we take it often, so that we can remember over and over and over again, so that our identity becomes wrapped up in what we're doing. You see, when he says to do this and remember to me, he's saying, make who you are all about what I did. Make you about what I did. Don't make you about what you did. That won't get you anywhere. Make your identity, make who you are, make who you see yourself as what Christ did. That's what a substitute does. You see, when, when the Israelites were in their house and the destroyer was coming, they said to themselves, he's not looking for us. He's looking for the lamb out there. Don't worry. He's not coming for us. He's not going to examine us. He's not going to look at our works. He's looking for that lamb out there. Nothing's changed. God doesn't look for us anymore. He looks for Jesus. And the Lord's Supper says, eat his blood, eat his body, drink his blood, identify with him. So when God, the judge, comes looking, he doesn't see you. He doesn't see you in all your failures and all your pride and all your weakness. He sees the lamb. That's what the Lord's Supper means. It creates a new group of people. That's why it's so important. It's not just a ritual that we do because we're supposed to. It tells us who we are. You don't know who you are until you take the Lord's Supper and you say, oh, I'm part of the body of Christ. This blood, this new covenant that was shed for me. 1 Corinthians 10 says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, though weak, though failing, though divisive, though wicked, though hateful, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. See what the Lord's Supper is doing for us? It's saying, stop thinking about yourself. Think about Christ, because that's who God's thinking about. And we all do it together. We are the body of Christ. Now, if you're not a believer right now, you're just waiting for God to show up. That's all you've got to look forward to is the destroyer to show up. That's no option. You get nothing out of that except for death. But what God's offering to you as an unbeliever is not, do you worship me? 
Not do you believe that I exist. Not do you attend the services. Not do you believe the Bible. Many here may do all of those things and may have done their whole lives. What God's asking is, do you have blood to give me? Your own or someone else's? And the only one God's going to accept is your blood or Christ's blood. So get rid of all the good stuff you've ever done in your life and toss it outside the house and get Christ's good works. That's all that God will accept. Claire Davies says, the Christian life is a combination of amnesia and deja vu. I know I've forgotten this before. I know I've forgotten this before. I knew Christ died for me, but I forgot again. The Lord's Supper reminds you. The gospel preaching reminds you that God doesn't look at you. He looks at Christ. Will you accept Christ? Or do you want to stand before God on your own, alone? Christ is waiting. Christ has come to you right now. This message is God coming to you. If you're not listening to it, you're not listening to God. But if you listen and accept, God will pass over your sins and receive you into the family. Let's pray.